good morning. As I was sitting there listening to worship, I thought about what I was doing last Sunday, uh, enjoying that two inches of snow in Lawrenceville, Georgia. But I also was thinking of the church of Smyrna. Uh, as John, by the Holy Spirit, wrote that uh, impregnable city on that mountaintop, that crevice called Smyrna, where there was no way of getting up there. And uh, they had become complacent, didn't have to worry about anything. And the account is told that one of the soldiers, he, as he fell asleep, his helmet came off. And they were spying how to get into Smyrna. And when he crawled down and climbed down that mountain ridge to get his helmet, they watched him as he went up. And that's how Smyrna was taken over, even though they were lulled to sleep, thinking they had everything they needed. It's good to take a Sunday off. It's good to take a Wednesday off. It's good to kick back and relax sometimes, the children of God. But the enemy is always working. The flesh is always busy. So we must be attentive to the word of God. We must be attentive to how the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and warning us to be vigilant, be alert. Uh, Pastor Jonathan did a great job. And then all the brothers in Christ who was here for the men's breakfast, he spoke about Saul. He spoke about Samson, and he spoke about Balaam, how a holy, righteous, good, and loving God would speak to them, give them an opportunity, give them a chance to come into the family of God. And we all know how they fell by the wayside. They saw something more important their eyes beheld something more important than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let us remember that if not by the grace of God, so go I, so go us. We must be vigilant. We must be disciplined in this day and age of being swamped by wave after wave of everything coming, the believer must swim upstream. And we must always keep our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. We're in the gospel of John and we're continuing through these 18 verses. We're gonna finish the chapter, but these 18 verses is called the prologue. And if you've ever read, and I know you have these 18 verses, there's something that theologians call a chaotic hymn in these first 18 verses. And, and as you're reading it, it speaks of Jesus Christ. And, and what the chaotic hymn, it goes something like this. It's a reversal in order of words in two otherwise parallel phrases. An example, he went to the country, to the town went she. So, as we read this prologue, 
it speaks about Jesus Christ. But then there's a bump in the road where it kind of goes sideways. He begins to speak about John the Baptist. And that seamless hymn is not seamless anymore. Why would the Holy Spirit, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word of God, all the way through, and then he throws a couple of lines in there about John the Baptist. That really seems to shake everything up. And we're going to look at the reason why that happens. We need to ask that question, why would he do that? And, and two theories on that is, I believe he, what he's wanting us to see, the Holy Spirit, he's contrasting Jesus with John the Baptist. Because in that day, in that first century, people were really exhorting or lifting John the Baptist up to the level of Jesus Christ. Now to us, that would be crazy. But that's what they were beginning to do. And John is wanting, wanting to correct that saying, hey, no. Of all those born of women, there was none greater than John the Baptist, but he doesn't begin to come close to the Savior of the world. The second theory is that John the Baptist, the apostle of love, John is wanting us to see John the Baptist as the first confessor of Jesus Christ, the first true witness of Jesus Christ. And so that's going to be the theme of verse 19 all the way through the rest of the book. John, we know, is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's paving the way for Jesus Christ and his ministry. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus overlaps John just a little. But the, the synoptic gospel are saying, but John is the forerunner. But when you, we read through the book of John, we see that John's ministry and Jesus' ministry overlaps a lot. Matthew 3, chapter, uh, verse 1 through 3 says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. We don't hear that word much in churches today. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken uh, by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one in one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke focused on. John's gospel, he wants to see, he wants to let us see that John the Baptist is a witness for Jesus. The word we know, the Logos, Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate witness, the ultimate truth for all of human history. But he's made known through witnesses. And that's exactly John's the Baptist role in John's gospel. John the Baptist is really a prototype of Jesus' disciples. Once again, he's the first witness to Jesus Christ. Even though the synoptic gospel speaks of John not being in the kingdom of God. Because remember, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet before the new age, the new era comes on the scene. Matthew chapter 1, verse 11 says it this way. Surely I say to you, 
among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. As great as John was, his ministry, we could say, was old school because he looked at the Old Testament prophets. It was in that area. And what John is saying, that those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, the new covenant, is greater than John because the new covenant is a better covenant than the old era man John was. So let's look at this witness this morning. And you'll hear me say it over and over again. We might not like me saying this, but it needs to be said because every believer should be a witness for Jesus Christ. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Remember Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, she was barren. And Zechariah had I like to say he had won the lottery because he had, he had the opportunity to go into the temple and light the menorah and keep all those things going. Luke chapter 1 verses 11 through 17 tells us this. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was his calling. Verse 7 tells us, speaking of John the Baptist, this man came for a witness, one who testifies or has a testimony toward Jesus Christ to bear witness of the light, which is Jesus Christ, that all through him, through John, might believe. If God was invisible till Jesus revealed him, and it will tell us that in verse 18, he and Jesus would remain invisible apart from believers sharing him. That's how important it is for those who are born again to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at John and other disciples beginning to model Jesus this morning, living the life and the character of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said about his disciples in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the privilege every believer has. He says in verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Many think, and I agree, that the reason John writes this statement is because when he wrote his gospel, there were those still, in his, and mainly in Ephesus, who were disciples of the Baptist. That's not good. The Messiah has come, his mission, his death, burial, and his resurrection, and you are still harping on you are one of John's, the Baptist disciples. That's not good at all. That's like having a million dollars in your chest at home of Confederate money thinking you are rich. You're not. John's baptism does us no good. It is not of any benefit now that Jesus Christ has come and instituted this new covenant. And speaking of John's disciple, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, here's an example of it. It says this, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They must have been acting contrary to the word of God. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. There it is. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, setting the stage for the Messiah to come, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. That's why that Confederate money is no good. That's why you're not rich, if you have it. Verse 9, he says, that was the true light. In contrast to John, who was merely a lamp. Chapter 5 of John will tell us that. Jesus is the genuine, the real deal. He's the light. And he says, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, what he's saying is coming into the world applies to the light rather than to every man. It refers in context to Jesus Christ's incarnation. He says that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. God did provide the light for all humanity in Jesus's incarnation. That's why he came. Just as he provided the light of Torah at Mount Sinai to all the nations. But just as the world rejected Torah, the world will reject God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ. All the way through the book of John, that's what we'll be contrasting. John contrasts Jesus' ministry with all of the religious leaders and the Judaizers and those that thought they were righteous because they held on to the law of Moses. And it's funny, it's ironic that what they're saying we're holding on to, Jesus Christ is saying, I am. I've come in the flesh to reveal all these things to you. So he says in verse 10, 
He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him implies deliberate rejection of Jesus Christ. John 3.32 tells us this, and what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. Verse 11 in some ways is one of the saddest verses of all scriptures. It says, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own high audios to one's own place or home. You can't get around it. It says in John 16, 32, at the beginning of verse 32, indeed, the hour is coming, Jesus Christ speaking. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own, his own domain. John 19, 27 puts it this way. Then he said to the disciples, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus has come to his own domain and was rejected. And then it says, and his own, speaking of the Jewish people, did not receive him. God's chosen people who celebrated Torah rejects Torah in the flesh. That's what they're doing here. And this frames a central ecclesiological theme in the book of John throughout his gospel. We'll see this. Verse 12 says, but as many as received him. That means it's to believe in his name and it speaks to his divine name, speaks of his honor. His name was to be and still is to be hollowed as sacred and the believing in his name implies that you believe that Jesus Christ is deity. He's God. That's why all of those other cults need, has to be pushed to a side because they don't believe that Jesus Christ is fully God. And he is fully God and fully man. That's condescension that he had to do. It says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right. People always ask me about Calvinism and Arminianism. If you were chosen to be saved from the foundation of the world, well, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to be saved. Or when you are called, there's a choice you have to make. The Bible speaks of both of them all the way through the scriptures. That's why I want you to hear this verse again. I was reading it this morning. But as many as received him, there had to be a calling. To them, he gave the right the power or the right, and it's correct when the word is used as right. It's Jesus as the word who gives the right to become children of God. The Holy Spirit is so exacting as you read his word. Every word is precise and it means something. When he uses the word children, that word child is technon. And the reason the Holy Spirit uses that word technon, it speaks to the believers. But then when he speaks of the son, he uses the word huios, the only one, Jesus Christ, because he wants to maintain that distinction between Jesus 
the son of God and the children of God. There's a distinction there, wouldn't you agree? Huh, yes. And the Holy Spirit does that here. He says, to those who believe in his name, verse 13, the new birth doesn't come by natural descent. That's what he's about to say. He says, who were born not of blood, literally of bloods. The ancient world of uh, procreation was understood to take place through the mixing of bloods of the father and the mother. God have given parents power to bring children into the world. But only the spirit of God truly creates spiritual birth. And that's what it needs. That's what we must have to enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say and says, nor of the will of flesh, nor is it the result of a human decision that you will be born again. I like how one Greek philosopher puts it. Made me laugh. This is what he said. Children, one Greek philosopher said that children need not be grateful to their parents for conceiving them. This is why most parents acted from passion rather than forethought. I had to laugh about that. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, not a husband's decision. The birth of a child of God, a child of God. It's not a natural birth. It's a supernatural birth. It's the work of regeneration that God does. He won't describe this supernatural birth until chapter 3 when he begins to speak to Nicodemus. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh, indicates Christ's humanity and his solidarity with humanity. And the word became flesh and dwelt, skaneo. There's our word, tabernacled. All the way through the wilderness wandering, the tabernacle was there. Looking as ugly as ugly could look on the outside, but beautiful on the inside. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Chapter 33, the children of Israel has made a huge mistake. Moses goes back up on the mountain and said, Lord, we've sinned against you. You're right. But we don't want to go on without you. And God says, no, don't worry about it, Moses. I'm going to destroy everybody and I'm going to make a people out of you. And Moses continued to plead. And God said, okay, I will send my angel with you. He will go before you. That wasn't enough for Moses. Moses said, Lord, you say you know me, but I don't know you. Show me your glory. And he says, I will allow all my goodness and my kindness passed by you. Chapter 38, he tells him, he puts him in the cleft of the rock. Here he comes, the glory of the Lord. And it says in Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7, can you imagine Moses' heart? Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is who I am. 
And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, that's who I am, merciful, gracious, long-suffering. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as, we're, as the Apostle Paul is beginning to explain exactly what love is, Love thinks no evil. I'm, gonna, I'm going to always give you, I'm going to always give you the benefit of the doubt. Huh. That's what love is. That's what he's saying here. Long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, They said they beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. Beheld is a much more strong of a word than saw or look. John tells us that he and the other disciples, they carefully studied Jesus Christ and his glory. The word made flesh. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? And I'm telling you guys this because this is what's going on in John's gospel. Because the influence of Plato permeated every aspect of religion and philosophy back then. So that anything tangible came to be seen as inherently evil. Any matter, they said it was evil. So the Gnostics, they recoiled at Jesus being a God-man. They said... When he, they, they were saying when he would eat, he really didn't eat his food. And when he relieved himself, he never relieved himself. And when he walked on the shore, that there was no footprints because he wasn't really a human being. And so John strikes back at all of these things. And he says this in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and he doesn't stop there, and our hands have handled. You can't tell us those lies. We touched them. We did all of those things concerning the word of life. That's who he is, Jesus Christ. That's why, because he only didn't resurrect resurrect spiritually, He had a a physical body just like we will have. And if there's any unbelievers in here, you won't get away that easy because Revelation tells me there's a body prepared for those who will live for eternity in hell. So it's no annihilation. You don't cease to exist. You will have a body made for you. And for the believers, it's a glorified body just like the Messiah. I love the way the word fits hand in glove. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. Only begotten, monogonase. That's the Greek word. But that word, it fails the etymology test because when they use that word monogamous, what it really meant then, they used it for procreation. They didn't mean, excuse me, they didn't mean for it to be 
procreation. As if Jesus Christ uh, was born by the Father. They don't mean that. The word used is the word monandikos, which means the unique one, the one of a kind. Now, early on, the church fathers, they used the word only begotten. That's why we have it here. But when they said that word only begotten, they meant it to be one of a kind, but that's not the Greek word for it. Jesus Christ was not born. He's always has been in existence from the beginning, which was no beginning. Yes, he had to come down here as a man to redeem man. That's why he could say before Abraham was, I am. I've always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. The scripture says, he's speaking, Jesus Christ speaking, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Speaking of himself, saying that I've always existed. The only beginning of the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Notice what it says, full of grace and truth. Grace is fine, but grace without truth is a problem. We need truth. Jesus Christ comes and he embodies them both. That same rendering of grace and truth is the same words in the Old Testament of kindness and faithfulness. Grace charis. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Hesed. And Hesed means making a covenant. Jesus Christ has come to make that covenant, the new covenant, with the believers. And it's a promise of everlasting life. It's funny in this prologue, in these 18 verses, grace and truth is spoken of three times. And every time it's spoken of, of course, it's only spoken of one person, Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he says, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from his fullness, we have received grace and truth. Then verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus' grace is seen most importantly most sufficiently is in the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's grace. And it was also truth because we needed a kinsman redeemer. We needed someone who could live a sinless life, blameless life, in word, thought, and deed, and that person was Jesus Christ. So there's the truth also. He says in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me. Once again, John was the forerunner. His ministry was in uh, preparation for the Messiah to come. He is before me, for he was before me. Remember, Jesus was six months 
younger than John. But once again, Jesus is the eternal word. And before John the Baptist, Jesus already existed. Verse 16, and of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. I love that verse. Literally, grace upon grace. Inexhaustible grace for the believer. I'll give you an example. We've all probably been to the beach and saw the waves crashing on the shore. Do they ever stop? They don't ever. Grace overlaps grace. Grace continues to come. When Pastor Victor stumbles and falls, Lord, please forgive me. And the enemy is saying, uh, you've said that too many times. You've blown it too many times. And then I hear that grace speaking wave upon wave of grace. Though the righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up because of that grace. That's what Jesus Christ means. That's what he stands for. That's what the Holy Spirit is exegeting here. He says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want you to catch that. The law was given. Okay, let's give him the law. But grace and truth did what? He came. It's more intimate. He comes down here and he walks it out. And he has compassion for the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. He has compassion about for Jairus' daughter. And he walks it out without sinning in any way. Oh, the law is good. I hear Paul says for those who, I want to make sure I get it right. The law is good for the rebellious, for the ungodly, for the unrighteous. Because what does the law do? The law is our tutor that leads us to Jesus Christ. But after you've come to him, we have everything in us, which is the Holy Spirit, to walk upright, to be holy, to live sanctified life. No matter what someone may say, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. And I'm going to share this because I don't usually share too much about what saddens me. But every once in a while, I'll scroll my Facebook page, just see what's going on. And it was this pastor of a mega church. And you know, it's the beginning of the year, so everybody's kind of advertising, come here for this, come here, polished, clean, everything. And I said, I, you know, I have it on mute, so I'm not listening to what everybody's saying, but I said, let me hear this. And for two minutes, well-known pastor, huge church, I think they're Alpharetta. But anyway, Hughes Church. Oh, and give it away. For two minutes, he spoke on being practical. I went back and I said, let me hear this again. Being kind, and that's okay too. But he never brought up 
Jesus Christ. He never shared the gospel one time. Just come. We want to show you the practical side of life. The practical side of life is walking in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about, you guys. Don't get caught up in this foolishness. Jesus Christ came for only one reason, to save sinners like us from an eternal hell because the wages of sin is death. That's going to happen. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If it wasn't that important, God would have never become a man. And he would never humbled himself the way he humbled himself, even death on a cross, if it wasn't that important. Don't go for that foolishness. And it just broke my heart. He says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. God in his essence is invisible. We've said that. First Timothy 1, 17 at the beginning of it, he says this, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Chapter 6, verse 16 puts it this way. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light? That's amazing. Whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The only begotten, the unique one of a kind, son, it says, who is in the bosom. I like that word. In the bosom of the father. He has declared him. He has exegeted him. He has explained him the way, the way no one could ever explain him. That's what he's saying here. For Jesus to make God known implies also more than just communicating a visual image. It means Jesus fully interpreted God. He told Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus unveils God, his character, perfectly. Perfectly. Hebrews chapter 1, the beginning of verse 3 tells us this. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That, that those two words, express image, character. Caricature, almost like the word character. It's a mark or figure burned in or stamped on something. And an impression of precise reproduction. That's what Jesus showed us of the Father. He says, who is in the bosom of the Father? A place of intimacy there. That preposition in suggests that Jesus revealed the Father while he remained, while he was down here, while he remained in his bosom. I never do anything the Father tells me not to do. I never say anything the Father tells me not to say. I always do the things to please the Father. He was in his bosom as he walked down here, except for one time. Eloi, Eloi, Allah, Allah sabbathani, sabbathani, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me in the lurch? All other times. When he dies that death, when he gives up the ghost, he's back with the father. That's amazing. We are through with the prologue. Once again, as we look at 19 through 51, John, the apostle of love, will begin to speak to us, to show us that not only John the Baptist, but all of the other uh, disciples that comes with him begins to model what a witness should be, how a witness should imitate Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19, and he shows us how to make disciples. Not only do you, we become witnesses, we shouldn't stop there. We begin to make disciples. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, these priests and Levites and these uh, religious leaders, they did what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go. They were the watchmen on the wall. They were supposed to go out. John was, was uh, great crowds were following John. Go out and see what's going on. What is he teaching? And so they do their job there. They're wanting to know, who are you? Before the Romans begin to want to know. So he says in verse 20, John speaking, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. They go out there because they're wanting to know, is this the Messiah? Is this him? That's why John, kind, he kind of fools them and says, I am. I, I believe they're holding their breath when he says, I am. Is he? Is he? And then he says, I'm not. That's how it falls. I am not the Christ. When we do go share, you guys, we must remember it's not about us. And we should be sharing. He says in verse 21, and they asked them, what then? Who are you? Why are you out here baptizing? Are you Elijah? Now, we know that John the Baptist was an Elijah type. He dressed like Elijah. He proclaimed uh, uh, repenting of your sins like Elijah did. Uh, we know that Elijah is coming back in the book of Malachi before the great and notable day of the Lord. So many thought he was Elijah, but he said, I am not. And then they asked, are you the prophet? Referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15, speaking of Jesus Christ. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Matter of fact, the father's statement when he says, hear him on the Mount of Transfiguration alludes to this context. It says in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, on that Mount of Transfiguration, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. So they asked, are you that prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So these guys, they're not interested in who John is. 
they are only going to take back the news who, who, he, who that he is. They're more concerned about how are you getting these crowds and what are you proclaiming here? And you know, the more things change, the more things, they stay the same. I'm intrigued. I'm blown away watching sporting events. And I love sports. Anybody know me? No, I, I enjoy my sports. But I'm intrigued, of, intrigued about how the masses arrive early to tailgate. And they stay out there all day long, excited about their team. Well, really, and especially in the NFL, whether you win or lose, it's no big deal to them. They're getting that paycheck. And they are crying and weeping as if this is something that's important. And as I was meditating on this, I said, Lord, how do you feel? How do you feel for masses of people weeping and tailgating all day and then whatever they do at night over a game and then no one's at church? Lord, how do you feel about that? And if we are true believers, we know how he feels about it. Because he says, I will have no other God in my presence, in my view. The Braves won the World Series, and I'm excited, happy about that last year. The Georgia Bulldogs won the college football championship. I'm not so much excited. My my dude back there, he came and let me know. I must confess, I wasn't so upset last Sunday that there was no church. Because I didn't have to face all you Bulldogs fans. But you got me today. But my point is, I preface it with this. I enjoy my sports. But it doesn't begin to come close to my love for Jesus Christ. I can't let it get to that point. I will not let it get to that point. You should not let it get to that point. He died. For us, He resurrected for us. Our life as believers should be all about him. I look at these parades, no matter what they are, and, and just tearing things up and enjoying and revelry and everything. And I'm saying, Lord, would to God we would tailgate to come to church, be out here early. Now, that's not going to happen because we have to wrestle with the flesh. And I'm talking about spiritual things. But my point is still, my passion should be more about my Savior than anything else. That's what Jesus Christ requires, really. And we're going to see that. Giving another example, politics. I'm amazed at how people can be so passionate about the left or the right and can tell you the talking points in the media but can't quote one scripture of repentance and faith. That's amazing to me. We should get our priorities in order. 
It's a shame that people will stand up and defend their favorite politician quicker than they will their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord's been speaking to me. That's true. They ask, they come out and they ask John the Baptist, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Are we concerned about spiritual things? Are we spiritually minded? Do we truly understand that time is linear? There's a beginning and there's an ending for all of us. I like how Luke gives us this sobering verse in chapter 17, verses 27 through 30, in case we need a reminder of it this morning. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Judgment's coming. And the flood came and destroyed them all likewise as it was also in the days of Lot. Judgment is coming. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, this is the reminder, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? No man knows the day or hour. Who are you? They come out and they ask him. He said, I am the voice for Neo. While Jesus is the word, the logos, the voice speaks or better yet proclaims the word. That's why we all need to be witnessing about Jesus Christ. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. All four gospel proclaims this verse right here, makes straight the way of the day of the Lord, but only hears it on the lips of a John the Baptist. And if you go back and look at that, when it says make straight the way of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, make straight the way of Yahweh, speaking of Jesus Christ. He is God. That's his point, and that's what he's saying here. Verse 24. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? We know baptism was, it was known well. Ceremonial washings. We also know that in Judaism, if any Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they had to be baptized. But the thing that confused everybody made the, uh, the Jews scratch their heads that John the Baptist was telling Jewish people, you need to be baptized. You need to repent. Because they thought they were okay. I'm Jewish. I'm okay. John says, no, it doesn't work like that. You need to get ready and repent of your sins. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophets? And their question in essence was, where's your credentials, John? That's what they were asking. 
Where's your official title, John? I feel for John. I understand that. Since you have TV, no seminary degree, what in the heck are you doing standing up here teaching the word? Because you don't have a doctor in front of your name, who gives you the right to stand up here and teach the word? Since you don't allow anyone to call you reverend, you must don't think too highly of yourself, and I don't. God has called me. God has given me the grace and the love to study his word. And that's what I love doing more than anything. And, it, and it's him speaking to me and me breaking down the word and look, looking at a little Greek and Hebrew, all those things. But it's my love for God and his call on my life to do that. I study. I'm reminded when Lydia and I went to Abigail's wedding, uh, the rehearsal, I go through the doors and they say, hey, Bishop, come on in, Bishop this and Bishop. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not a bishop. Just call me Victor. But it's, it's amazing how people do that. But I love the Lord. I love his word. And it's a calling on my life. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. That's why I'm here. Allow me to introduce him to you. That's what John is really saying. I believe Paul used this same reasoning where John says this at Mars Hill. Remember, he's walking in Athens and he's looking around and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things, you are very religious. That won't get you into the kingdom of heaven. For as I was passing through, and considering the objects of your worship. That's what I'm really nailing it down to this morning. The objects, more than one, of your worship. Whether it's houses or lands or cars or sports, a sports activity, sporting activities, allow them not to be the objects of your worship. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your profession, whether it's your career, whether it's your education, allow them not to be the objects of your worship. They cannot hold eternity. They will not stand when everything else is shaken. They will shake also. That's what Paul is saying. I even found the altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. That's what John the Baptist is saying. I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It's Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior this morning. He says in verse 27, it is he who coming after me in human history is preferred before me whose sandal strap 
I am not worthy to lose. The most demeaning task to a servant was carrying his master's sandals or unloosing them or washing their feet. They even had a caveat when, when, when the, 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 the disciples finally said, the teacher, the ancient teachers finally said, this is the only caveat that, that the disciples don't have to do is wash their master's feet or carry his sandals. They put that caveat in there. And notice what John the Baptist says. Whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Gaze upon John's humility. And now behold yourself. We, the church gets into more arguments and disputes and quarrels. It boils down. The reason why it boils down to humility. In my household, the reason I argue, most of the time it boils down to humility. How can we have one iota of pride when we see God made man and humble himself. It should all flow out the window here. Verse 28. These things were done in Beth, about beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, consider this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I'm sure that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, I believe it was a lamb that the father killed, Jesus killed, and made them clothing. And then I begin to think about all of the lambs that were slain in the Exodus account and the, board, and, and the blood put on the doorpost and lentil so that God, Yahweh, would pass by them and not destroy the firstborn. And then as Moffat speaks of the book of Leviticus, the Levitical drudgery. Every time you would sin, you had to carry something and make that sacrifice. And that last Old Testament prophet gets to point his finger and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a blessing. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could ever take away sins. Verse 30, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Verse 32, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove. Now, the dove in Israel, it usually symbolizes, of course, we say the Holy Spirit. It can symbolize peace. But to me, I believe this dove symbolizes a harbinger of Noah's dove. Remember when Noah sent out that dove and it had nowhere to land his feet? A new era was coming. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying. A new covenant 
is being prepared here. He says, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. The spirit gives to Jesus Christ without measure, he says. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me, which was God, to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. Verse 35, again the next day. Now I want you to see these witnesses. That's what John writes this for. John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked. We will find out that one of those disciples we know is Andrew. And I believe the other is the apostle of love. As he walked, they began to walk with him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, speaking of John the Baptist, and they followed Jesus. Good good thing to do. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to to them, what do you seek? He just didn't turn around and say, hey, come, come on and hang out. He asked them a question. What are you seeking? Why are you seeking me? Are you seeking me for a lucrative job, a lucrative career? Are you seeking me because your family is in shambles and you just want your family to be okay? Are you seeking me so I can have the best life ever today? Why are you seeking me? That's what he had to ask me. Growing up in a religious household, mom and dad believers, I saw the Lord, how he blessed them, but I didn't want to give my life to him. And every time I would half give my life to him, that was the reply. Why are you seeking me? Are you seeking me for the right reason? I say it all the time. Jeremiah says, when you seek me with your whole heart, then you will be found by me. You can't play with God. He he, he doesn't play. He wants commitment. He wants me and you to put our lives on the altar. If nothing else goes well down here while my life is on the altar, it will be okay when I give up the ghost. That's what matters. No time for foolishness. He didn't come down here to give me my best life ever. If I have a cardboard box that I have to live in for the rest of my life and die at the age of 85 and go to heaven to live with him, That's all that matters. And that's all that matters to you, it should be. That's what he says here. Why are you seeking me? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour, around four o'clock in the evening, One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon's Peter brother. He first found, now notice what he does, Andrew. He wasn't satisfied that he was following. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. It's good to tell people about him, but we need to bring them. And that means a continual discipling. 
Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. All we need to do is bring people to Jesus. That's all he's called us to do. He will do the rest. Understand, Andrew is no scholar. Matter of fact, at this time, John, the apostle of love, they said his vocabulary was only about 600 words. And the reason I tell you that, verse 43 tells us, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, now Jesus is calling, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, are we sharing Jesus Christ? Are we sharing Jesus Christ? Rick Shabelsky has a great ministry, and we were talking about that. It's been on the screen. And they go out. It's the outreach ministry. And they go out and they, and they share the gospel and they help families and things like that. We're going to be doing much more of that this year. It's good to share. We, we shouldn't be like the Dead Sea. Let the word flow into us and never give any of it out. Jesus has commanded us the great commission to share. Victor, you can make up all kinds of excuses why you don't. But once again, that's a commandment, and we need to do those things. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. A reference to Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We have found him. The one that Moses spoke of, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They're not scholars. They will find out that he's the son of God. Verse 46, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a little insignificant place, a little town. I believe Nathanael said this because I think he was thinking of that prophecy in Micah 5 2 which stated that the Messiah would come not from Nazareth but from Bethlehem but anyway Philip said to him come and see now what I want us to see about this and then I'll go to my seat what I want us to see about this Philip doesn't argue with Nathaniel about this he wasn't sidetracked because he couldn't answer a question about Jesus so don't let that hinder you from going out proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't wait until you know it all and then go because you'll never go. That's what he's saying here. That's what I get from this. Just go and share. And that's what Philip did here. He just said, hey, don't worry about it. I don't have to have a theological degree. I don't have to have all my ducks, theological degree ducks in a row. I know how he's changed my life. I know what he's done for me and my family. And I know everyone in my family that's given their life to Jesus Christ, how they walk. So I can go out and proclaim that and proclaim that boldly. And Jesus says that's sufficient enough. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite. Now he says an Israelite because Romans chapter nine, where it speaks of how the Jewish people are blessed because they have the covenants, they have the patriarchs, they have the temple, they have the worship, they have all of these things, the oracles of God. But they still need me even though you had a good start, even though you were raised in a good Christian home, that doesn't get you into the kingdom. That's a good start, but that doesn't get you into the kingdom. Jesus is saying here, you need to know him for yourselves. Behold an Israelite in whom is no deceit. I love how John does this because the reason he says this Israelite has no deceit I believe he's studying Genesis 28, speaking of Esau, that Jacob has stolen his blessing and running to Patanaram to, to, he's going to find out, he's going to wind up at Laban's household. And what he's saying here, even though you have no deceit in you, your ancestor Jacob, a patriarch, was full of deceit, a hill catcher. And just like Jacob had to finally fall on his knees, repent of his sins, and ask me to ask me to come into his life, and I changed his name from Jacob to Israel, even though you don't have any deceit in you, you still need me. That's all of us that's not born again. He says, Come and see. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, that's all he needed. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ, as we know in Genesis 28, as Jacob dreamed his dream and seen the angels of God ascending and descending. He's the portal. He's the gateway to heaven. And that's what John will be explaining the apostle of love all the way through his gospel. Why all of these proud religious leaders thinking they don't need Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you're going, if you're going to wind up in heaven, you need to get on Jacob's ladder and let him escort you there. The worship team can come up. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the Logos, who is the word of God, who is the one we need, whether we know it or not. Even when we're born again, we still need him. We need him to carry us. When things aren't going well, we need him to encourage us. David says, Even when I didn't want to, he says, soul, praise the Lord. Because Jesus Christ is worthy, you guys. 
of all of the things that's going on in, on this planet about to go to war can't get COVID under control. Don't even let me start talking about the economy, inflation. Don't even let me talk about that. But my point is, I don't know if I, if I have a pea brain and things just don't worry me, but I'm not worried. I'm not worried. My hope is secure in the person of Jesus Christ. I will sit down after this. My uncle passed away. We had his funeral Tuesday. And most of us probably have all been to funerals. I'm I'm beginning to like funerals. I don't know because what funerals do for me, it allows me to understand and know that I'm not going to be here forever. You're not going to be here forever. And so when I go there, and as I saw Uncle Junior being eulogized, heard him being eulogized, they called him, and it was the right name, a a quiet man. He never spoke much. I told Michael, my first cousin, I said, Michael, your dad was the only one that when I was having my hard times before I knew the Lord, when we would go to Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, he would always say, Al, because he called me out, Al, it's going to be all right. Al, I'm praying for you. It takes other, some people longer than it takes others. And, and, and he would always encourage me with that. But to see him lying there, knowing there was nothing but a shell, knowing that he's already in the presence of the Lord, Michael said, I told him, I said, Michael, your dad's at home now, but you're not, and I'm not, and I've got to keep striving. I've got to keep walking. I I was telling the guys uh, yesterday in the men's breakfast, I like how Mr. Corley put it, I'm living to be saved. I think that's the way it is. I'm living to be saved. I've got to walk it out. You've got to walk it out. Whether you believe it or not, the scriptures tells you, you have to walk it out. But his grace is sufficient. Let's strive this year to honor the Lord. Let's strive this year to be a better believer. And the way you become a better believer, you walk closer and closer to the Lord as the days grow darker and darker. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for putting up with us for your grace upon grace, which we need. But Lord, even with all of those things, cultivate a greater love for you in our hearts. Because if we love you, we will obey you. And your commandments are not burdensome. Lord, I pray that everyone here, if they're not in love with Jesus Christ, would fall in love with him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.